All right, hey, if you are one of our pirate ship or battleship kids, you guys can head back to the back. Where's our pirate ship and battleship people? They're back there in the back? Well, yeah, there we go. All right, there's a couple of them back there in the back. All right, you guys can head on your way out. We will see you in just a little bit. So uh, let's start this way. Merry Christmas. There we go. That was, that was kind of you. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and if, if you have uh, been at all like keeping up with, with anything uh, in the news this week, you know that it's been a uh, kind of a crazy week, really, in all honesty. Uh, for Anybody follow all the Duck Dynasty stuff that's going on? It's kind of nuts, right? I mean, it's kind of crazy that all this is going on. And I'm not going to make a big social commentary on anything about that, but, but I have been kind of following on social media. And it's interesting, uh, this, this whole kind of uh, firestorm uh, around uh, the comments that, that Phil Robertson made, that it, it really draw, drives people into one of three camps. Um, there is the initially outraged uh, which was the, the, the gay and lesbian community this week, they were, they were initially outraged at the things that, that he had said. Um, and then there's the reactionarily, that's a word, the reactionary outrage, which is we are outraged by the outrage. So that was the evangelical camp that was like, how can you be outraged at this? First Amendment speech. And then there's the divisionally outraged. They're the people who are outraged by the outrage to the outrage. You know, these are the people on Facebook that are like, guys, there are bigger things for us to worry about today than Phil Robertson. And, and as I'm like watching all of these camps kind of like work their way out, what I'm starting to see is that as a society, our default position around disagreement is outrage. Like everybody's outraged about everything. And we kind of forget sometimes. And for me, I'm tempted to kind of fall that way. And I forget what Paul says in Philippians 4, 5, when he tells the believers at Philippi, let your reasonableness be known to all. But reasonableness isn't as fun as outrage. Like it's much more fun to be furious about things. And this, this stuff kind of happens. You remember a couple months ago, everybody was outraged about Chick-fil-A. You know, everybody, and, and then that you know, happens. Everybody's angry and we lose Facebook friends and Twitter followers and, and then it blows over. And this thing probably will blow over too. And there are important things that are being said. I understand that. But there's this outrage culture. And every time Christmas comes up, again, there's always underneath the surface this outrage culture. Uh, a couple years ago, remember there was this, uh, the, the big push was that we couldn't say that you weren't allowed to say Merry Christmas anymore because people were outraged and they were offended that the word Christ was in Christmas. And then evangelicals got really upset at that. And, 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 and then they started to kind of change not only Merry Christmas, we got to call them holiday trees and we got to call it winter solstice and all this kind of, you know, crazy stuff that just starts to happen. And everybody gets upset about that. And, and really there was, this, there was this term that was coined around that time called the war on Christmas Anybody, anybody heard like the war on Christmas? Like that kind of, uh, like pundits kind of started to throw this around that there was a, that people were declaring war on Christmas. And the gist of that was that there's somebody out there, some group of people out there that are trying to take Christmas away from us. And, and the flaw in that thinking is that Christmas is somehow confined to just being an approved event that our society determines. That it's this, that Christmas is just this approved event that we do every year and somebody can come and they can take it away from us. But ultimately, Christmas isn't about an event or it isn't about tradition. So what is Christmas about? Um, I listened to a very famous philosopher uh, talk about what is Christmas about this week. He was on TV, actually, and, and I brought that clip with me if you guys want to watch it.
Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Isn't there anyone? Should again, but I, I just, I, I remember that. And everybody's seen Charlie Brown Christmas. You've seen the monologue. You've seen, I almost brought a blanket on stage with me and asked the guys to do lights, please, but I, I didn't do that this week. <laughs> I, I think we have to remember, I think that around Christmas, and what I want to focus on this morning is we have to remember that Christmas is really a celebration of the truth of the gospel. It's what it is. It's a celebration of the truth of the gospel. And I, and I feel like sometimes in our eagerness to defend that truth, we've forgotten to herald the goodness of it. In our eagerness to defend that truth, I think we've forgotten to herald the goodness of it. And what I want to unpack this morning is this idea that the good news that the angels proclaim to the shepherds is still good news for us today. Or, say it an easier way, um, the good news is still good. It's still good. Uh, Linus is, is quoting from Luke chapter 2, and if you've got your Bibles, uh, turn to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. There's one back here on the connection table. If you just stop by on your way out and say, hey, I don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you. Um, but if you don't have your Bible with you this morning, you can look. It's going to be on the screen behind me. Luke chapter 2, and, and we've already read this twice this morning, but I want to read through it one more time just so we can emphasize that the good news is still good. So Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, this is a very, very important section of scripture if you know anything about the Bible. But, but let me give you just a, a little bit of a background here. So uh, at the end of the Old Testament, uh, the last book of the Bible is, is Malachi. And we believe that at the end of the Old Testament, God, for one reason or another, goes silent. And for over 400 years, God does not speak to his people Israel. He doesn't send a prophet. He doesn't send a word. There is silence from the Lord. And then in Matthew, we, we, the first book of the Bible, but Luke is also accounting this, this same story, the beginning of the New Testament. It says that the Lord, an angel, comes to a man named Zechariah. And he prophesies to Zechariah that his wife, who is barren, will have a son, and he'll name him John. And then the angel comes to Mary, a virgin, betrothed to a man named Joseph, and tells her that she will bear 
the Messiah. And then he tells Joseph, don't be afraid about this, but your son is going to be the son of God. And then in Luke chapter 2, we read where Mary and Joseph go. There's no room for him in the end. We've all understood this story. There's no room for him in the end. They have this baby. And it says that in the same region there were shepherds. And all of a sudden a host of angels made a proclamation to the shepherds. And this was the first time in over 400 plus years that God had made a public proclamation and said, go and tell. So this is a very, very big deal. God has not been heard from for hundreds of years. And now all of a sudden there are angels telling these shepherds to go. This is huge. So what is the message that's so important that God breaks back into history to tell the shepherds? That's what I want to look at this morning. It tells us all right here. Verse eight says, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. Now, shepherds were kind of a rough crew, okay? Shepherds were were kind of these rough guys. Uh, When I was in college, I would come home in the summer and I would roof Anybody ever, anybody ever done any roofing? Okay, it's the least fun job ever. Like it just isn't, and, and it's even worse to roof in Augusta, Georgia in July. Like it's like 120 degrees, okay? So I would come home and I would roof with these guys that uh, were, were uh, the, the foreman was a member of my dad's church and I would come home and I would roof. And these guys were rough guys. I remember like showing up like on day one, I've got my new jeans on, you know, and I'm just like, hey guys, you know, and here are just these grizzled old men who, you know, have just been in the sun their whole life, and they're just, they, you know, everything's dirt stained, and I'm just like, what, what am I getting myself into? And I would remember that after we would work on the job, and you'd work for like eight, nine, ten hours slamming shingles in the heat, like you, I would be, I would just be rough looking. Like, I mean, my, my shirt is stained with sweat. I've got dirt all over my face. I look like I've painted up with war paint. You know, my jeans are torn. And then we would go and we would eat lunch. And I remember we would sit down at lunch and people would just be like, my gosh, who are these people, you know? And eventually I was like, this is kind of weird. But then I started to embrace it, you know? I would just like, I would just make sure that I would get as filthy as I could and then walk into like anywhere and be like, can I use your phone? And I'd be like, no, get out of here. That's this kind of idea. These shepherds, they're a rough-looking bunch. They're, they're, they're grizzled. They're, they're guys. They might have been the original rednecks, like the shepherds. They might have had deer tattoos. And, you know, it's like, who are these guys? They're out in the field. They're working the night shift. They're blue-collar. And then all of a sudden, this angel shows up. And it appears to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Now, angels in the scriptures are almost always referred to as heralds or messengers from God. And I think our perceptions of angels are a little bit off. When we think about angels, we either think about Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life, or we think about little fat baby angels that have rosacea, and they play like harps on a cloud. You know, we just think about angels in that way. We've, we've missed the fact that they are glorious, heavenly beings. And that they've come from the presence of God. And they come bearing messages from the almighty God. And it says that not only is there an angel, but that the glory of the Lord shines around them. Now, if we know anything about the Old Testament, we know that man cannot stand in the glorious presence of God. 
Um, Several times, man interacts with the glorious presence of God, and it never goes well for man. Uh, In Exodus, uh, Moses, who is as close to God as as anyone in the Bible other than Jesus, who was God. But Moses, it says that Moses and God used to talk face to face as if they were friends. It said that the Spirit of God would descend on the tent of meeting, and Moses and God would discuss, and they would talk about how to lead Israel. And it says that Moses finally gets up the courage one day to ask God, he says, show me your glory. And God says, you can't look at my glory. If you look at my glory, you'll die. In Isaiah chapter six, it says that Isaiah, the prophet, is shown the Lord seated on the throne. It says, Isaiah falls on his face. He says, woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I am from a people of unclean lips. When a prophet pronounced woe on something, what he's doing, he's pronouncing death on it. So what Isaiah says, when he sees the glory of God, he says, kill me, because I'm a sinner. So if Moses and Isaiah, who, who Moses, who, who is speaking to God as friends, Isaiah, who has a book of the Bible named after him, don't stand a chance in the glory of God. What, what, a, what am I going to do? You know? And what are these shepherds, these original rednecks, what, what are they, what, what's going to happen to them? So it says that their reaction was quite appropriate. The angel shows up, the glory of God shines around them, and they are terrified. Terrified. And the angel says to them, fear not. Everywhere angels show up, they're always telling people to chill out. Like always. Angel shows up, he's like, chill out. It's cool. Don't worry about it. Not going to smite you. Like, it's, it's all right. You see it in, in Zechariah. If you read back in Luke, uh, an angel shows up to Zechariah. It says, Zechariah was afraid. And the angel's like, don't be afraid. He shows up to Mary, and Mary's like fearful. And the angel's like, don't be afraid. He shows up here to the shepherds, and the shepherds are like, I'm terrified. I don't know what to do here. This is not on the, on the punch list tonight. And, and the angel just goes, no, 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 chill out. It's not a big deal. Fear not was this command to, to not be afraid, to not be worried, to not be anxious. And in the scriptures, anytime the command fear not comes about, it is almost always followed by the promise of God's presence. In Joshua, several times, uh, Joshua is told to lead the people after Moses' death. And God comes to Joshua and he says, don't be afraid. Be very strong and courageous. And every time he says it, he says, for the Lord your God goes with you. So this gives us a little bit of a foreshadowing of what the message is going to be when the angels show up and they say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It gives us a little bit of a foreshadowing that the presence of God is somehow involved with the rest of the story. It says, don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news. The command not to fear is followed by the reasoning of good news. He says, don't be afraid, because I've got good news. Good news implies some sort of benefit for the receiver of it, right? If I have good news for you, that means that something good is going to happen for you or has happened to you. The Greek word here is uh, euangelizo, which is um, another paraphrase of the word euangelion, which just means good news, where we get the word evangelism from. It's where we get the word gospel. God, when we talk about the gospel, we just talk about the good news. So when the angel says, don't be afraid because I'm bringing you the gospel, I'm bringing you the good news, this is the first act of evangelism. He says, I'm bringing you good news of glad tidings. And then he says, of great joy. So not only is the news good, not only is it beneficial for the shepherds, but it's going to bring about in them great joy, exceeding delight. 
That's this idea of, of exceeding. When you think about the word exceeding, it surpasses normalcy. And delight is this great pleasure. So the angel says, don't be afraid because I'm bringing you good news that's not only gonna produce this kind of emotional, fickle happiness in you. We talked about this a lot in the Philippians series. Happiness is something that can be taken away like that. It comes on like that and it goes away like that. The angel's not talking about happiness. He's talking about joy. He says, I bring you good news of deep, long, fulfilling, soul-abiding joy. And then he tells him who's it for. He says, good news of great joy that will be for all people. For all people. No one is excluded from this good news of great joy. Why, why do you think God, after several hundred years of silence, decides to break back into history and the first people he tells are these shepherds? Isn't there other people he probably could have told that would have gotten the message out a little bit quicker? Or would have gotten the message out a little bit better? Why didn't he, why didn't he go to Herod, who was the king? Why didn't he go to the, the Roman Empire, who controlled most of the world at that point? Why didn't he go there and just say, hey, spread this around. There's good news, great joy. But instead, we see God going to shepherds. And, and really, over the course of history, this is the way of God. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through, 27, or 26 through 29, Paul says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then in Romans 2.11, Paul says that God shows no partiality. One of my favorite verses in Scripture is when Paul uh, is going to confront uh, the apostles about some things that, that, that they're, they're misunderstanding about the gospel. He says, I went to the ones who seemed influential. What they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. I love that because Paul walking up to the men who walked with Jesus and he goes, look, I don't care who you guys are. This is a message from the Lord and you guys need to understand the truth. So I'm gonna respond the way that God God shows no partiality to kings versus shepherds. And I think the reason that God decides to herald the good news of great joy that will be for all people to these regular guys is to show them that nobody's gonna be excluded from this good news. This good news isn't just for the kings. It's not just for the wealthy. It's for the shepherds. It's for the blue collar. It's for the rednecks. It says no one will be excluded from the good news. I think the shepherds are the first folks entrusted with the good news to show that God can and will use anyone who is available to him. Good news of great joy for all people. The angel goes on and says, for unto you. Now, not only is this good news of great joy for all people, us, corporately, but there's a distinctly personal component to it. You already says? For unto you. So this interesting thing happened when I got married. Um, So before I got married, Christmas gifts, I got Christmas gifts, right? Now, uh, uh, outside of my home, uh, now... um, we get Christmas gifts. You know what I'm saying? Like, you guys know what I'm saying. Like, men, you know, you know what I'm saying here? Same kind of thing happens at wedding showers. You know, it's like, hey, come on, we're gonna go. They're gonna give us, we're, 
we are going to get lots of gifts. And they'll open it up, and they're like, salad spoons. And I'm like, I wanted a chainsaw. Like, you know, like I, that's not a we gift. That's a you gift. I don't even like salad. <laughs> this kind of idea of like us gifts. And I think sometimes we've taken this good news of great joy, and we've made it an us gift, which it is. But this good news of great joy is for you. It's for you. There is a personal component to it. And I think when we think about that, that the gospel isn't just for us, but it's for me, that changes a little bit of how we interact with it. And the angel goes on, he says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David. So the location, so we're getting closer to the bottom here. He says, now he's given us the location of the good news. Good news, great joy for all people unto you, born this day, where? In the city of David. Now, David, what the, the now, uh, if you look at this and you just go, who's David? Do the shepherds know who David is? David is in the Old Testament. He was the king of Israel. Everybody knows David and Goliath, the, the story of, of David. David was born in a small town called Bethlehem. His father, Jesse, and his brothers lived in a city called Bethlehem. So when the angels say to the shepherds, born this day in the city of David, the shepherds know that they're talking about Bethlehem. Anybody ever been to like the hometown of, um, I grew up very close to the hometown of uh, President uh, or General uh, Ulysses S. Grant. And everybody, and it was on the sign on the way in, birthplace of U.S., uh, of Ulysses S. Grant, President of the United States, General Union Army, all that kind of stuff. City of David, Bethlehem. Now, this is very important because in Micah, chapter 5, verses two, verse 2, the prophet Micah prophesies about the town of Bethlehem. He says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Now, this is very Lord of the Rings kind of speak. You know, it's like we're, we're thinking like, okay, there was a prophecy made as far back as Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 15 and 16, we read about the proto-euangelion, the first gospel. When man sins, God um, says to the serpent, one day there's going to be a man born of a woman who will come and he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. That's the first time in all of scripture that we hear there's somebody coming to deal with the problem of sin. If there's somebody coming, he's going to be born of a woman, and he's going to deal with the problem of sin. And he says in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, you, Bethlehem, out of you will come a ruler who's, who's, who's been told from the days of old. So this is, this is, there's clues here along the way. There's starting to be clues as to what this good news is regarding. And then they just come out and say it. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Now the concept of a Savior ties directly into why the good news is good. Okay? He says good news. All right? Great joy. Unto you, born this day. And now he says, a savior. That's why the good news is good. Now, to understand good news, there has to be what? Bad news, right? Because good news without bad news is just news. And the angel doesn't come and say, hey, I have news. He says, I have good news. 
So if there's good news, there's got to be bad news. What's the bad news? The bad news is that you and I have been separated from God by our sinfulness. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, it set off this domino effect that every human being for the rest of history would be affected by. That means you, that means me. We're born into a sinful state, separated from a holy God. And in our sinfulness, we cannot, we cannot approach the presence of God. Remember we talked about a second ago, no man can stand in the presence of God. Why? Because God is perfect, right, just, holy. And all that he is and all that he does, and you and I are sinful, rebellious, and even our good deeds are stained with our sinfulness. And in the Old Testament, God gives the people the law. And the people begin to think that if we can just obey the law of God, we can just obey the Ten Commandments, then we'll be right with God. But that's not the point of the law. The point of the law is simply to show you and I that we can't possibly live up to it. If you just tried to live your life by the Ten Commandments, how many of you would just screw up? I would. I screwed up today. So the law just points to the fact that we can't keep the law, that we need somebody else to keep the law for us, that you and I are in our born sinful state, are separated from God, and we need somebody that can step in, that can live the life that we can't live, die the death that we should die so that we can be reconciled to God. So when God starts to promise in Genesis chapter three, this Messiah, that's what he's promising. There's one coming. He's gonna live the life that you can't live. He's gonna pay your penalty of sin on the cross. And through his life, death, and resurrection, you can be freed from the slavery of sinfulness. And the shepherds, they would have known. They would have known now who the angels were talking about. This long prophesied Messiah. So you see how it's building. For unto you, born this day, city of David, a savior. Okay, we've got it. The long prophesied Messiah. Now who is he? And the angel finishes by saying, who is Christ the Lord? The word Christ, it's not just Jesus' last name. It wasn't like Mary and Joseph Christ. Christ means Christos. It's the Greek word Christos. And it affirms that he is the long-awaited Messiah. The word means anointed of God. This is the one, anointed of God. But he didn't stop there. He didn't stop by just saying, who is Christ, the anointed of God? No, 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 no. He continues it. He says, who is Christ? The Lord. And that is key because what the shepherds now know is this is not just some regular man who's going to be anointed of God. This is not just another prophet. This is not just somebody else who's going to become a God. No, 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 no. This is God himself. God himself has come on a rescue mission of mercy for his wayward children. Jesus, 100% man, 100% God. The word we use for this is incarnation. God literally putting on flesh. In John 1.14, John talks about this when he says, and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. God, the almighty creator of the, hu- of the human race, of the universe, puts on humanity and he dwells among sinful men. Um, there's a theologian, J.I. Packer, and he says this, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us lies not in the Good Friday message of the atonement, 
nor in the Easter message of the resurrection, but in the Christmas message of the incarnation. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. That God, holy, just, righteous, good, would put on flesh and come for his rebellious, sinful children. That after thousands of years of sending messages and prophets, and after 400 years of silence, God comes to his people, not by fire, not by military might, but as a baby born in a manger to a Jewish carpenter and his virgin wife. You can't make that up. That's what Packer's saying. Nothing in fiction is so beautiful as the truth of the incarnation that the baby lying in a manger in Bethlehem would grow into the sinless man who would hang on a cross at Calvary so that you and I could be reconciled to God. That is the good news of great joy for all people. For unto you, you and I, who could not get to God on our own, is born this day in the city of David, the long-prophesied Messiah, the Savior, who is Christ, the Anointed One, the Lord himself. We had sinned against God, running as fast as we could in the other direction from him. He came, fulfilled the law for us, died the death that I should have died, so that I could have a relationship with him. So that Christmas could mean something. Not just an event where we swap gifts with one another and where we gather our families together, but no, 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 that Christmas is a celebration of the truth of the goodness of God and the grandeur of our King. And that news is still good. It's still good today. The same news that the angels proclaimed to the shepherds is good news for us today. So let me close with this. Why does, why does God go to all this trouble? Was he lonely? Was God lonely in heaven going, you know what I should do? I should create somebody, some people that I can just hang out with. No, 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 no. We believe that God is, is Trinitarian. He's three in one. That God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they've been together from the beginning, which means that they don't have a beginning, they don't have an end. I don't understand it, but the Bible says it, so I'm gonna believe it. It says that God is perfectly content and full of himself. So he didn't create us out of loneliness. He created us to reflect his glory into creation. So why does he come on a mission of mercy? Why does he come? Why does he put on flesh? Why does he live here? Why does he leave his throne in heaven to live here on earth, to die a sinner's death? Why does he do that? Because he needs us? Because God needs me on his team? Like he was like, you know who I really need? David's sons. That guy, he's a snazzy dresser. He's got an awesome beard. I want to use him to reflect my glory back to grace. God doesn't need me. He doesn't need me. His mission on this planet to get his glory will go on with or without me. But here's the beautiful truth of Christmas and of the gospel. He wants me to play a part in it because he's my dad and he loves me. Um, so when I was little, I, uh, every year I would go with my dad to uh, get the Christmas tree. And we didn't, we didn't have a fake Christmas tree and we didn't go to a Christmas tree lot. Like we did the Griswold thing, you know? 
Like we, we, we went out into the, hiked out into a, these Christmas tree farms and we searched all day. You know, we'd search for hours for the right Christmas tree. And I grew up in Cincinnati, so it snowed. I, I know that's funny thinking it's 80 out here today, but it snowed around Christmas. And, and I would remember, I just remember being a little kid, three, four, five, six years old, that almost always it would snow when we'd go find the Christmas tree. And my dad and I would hike into the woods and we would cut down the Christmas tree. And believe it or not, at about four years old, I would get pretty tired. So eventually what my dad would have to do is he'd have to scoop me up in one hand, grab the tree in the other, and drag the tree through the snow up to the top of the hill. Now, does my dad need me there? No. Am I doing anything but really slowing him down considerably? No. So why am I there? Why every year, dad, are you willing to trudge up the hill holding a five-year-old who wants hot chocolate Dragging a Christmas tree. It's not because he needs me. It's because I'm his son and he loves me. Because I'm his son, he wants me to be where he is and to see what he does. This Christmas, don't, don't get it twisted and think that God couldn't do it without you, but he wants you. He wants you to be a part of what he's doing in the world. He wants you to be a part of the celebration of the gospel truth. He came, lived, a sinless life so that you could be reconciled to him, so that you could fulfill the purpose with which you were designed, that is to reflect his glory back out into creation. So don't let Christmas this year, this celebration of the gospel, go by without acknowledging that God wants you. He wants to use you. He wants to work through you. He wants you to know him. Tell others about him because in that we will find good news of great joy for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the angels gathered together and they sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those with whom he is well pleased. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, Father, that you've not remained hidden from us. But God, you've given us your word, and more than that, you've given us your son. The God-man, the incarnation of God, living in human form. And Father, I just pray that we would not be so distracted by all the other things that attach themselves to Christmas that we would forget that it is ultimately a celebration of the truth, of the good news that we who are lost can be found. God, that you desire a relationship with sinful, fallen human beings. You desire a relationship with us right now where we are. We don't have to clean ourselves up to make ourselves more presentable, but Father, we just simply come humbly to you and say, God, I wanna know you. And God, through Jesus, you meet us right where we are. And Father, you give us life and joy. So Father, I pray for those in here this morning that might not know you. Maybe they just showed up this morning because it's Christmas and that's what we're supposed to do is go to church on Christmas. But God, I just pray that this morning your Holy Spirit has penetrated hearts and minds. 
Pray for uh, the believers in this room, God, who've been so wrapped up this week in other things and family obligations and buying the right gifts that they've forgotten to celebrate the truth that this good news is for them. It's not just for us, it's for me. And so, Father, I pray as families, God, this week, we would, we would celebrate that truth together. Thank you that the message is both corporate and personal. So, Father, as we sing, as we give our worship and our praise back to you, I pray that you would be honored by this. I pray that we would be a church that is marked by people who are forgiven, doing what they can to tell others that they can be forgiven too. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.